Welcome to the New York Startup. I'm Zach Firestone, and I chat with founders, investors, and other key players in the startup ecosystem. You can find us at thenewyorkstartup.com or on Twitter at VNY Startup. I am super excited today to have Hadley Harris on the show. Hadley's a founding general partner at ENIAC Ventures, a legendary seed stage VC. Prior to ENIAC, he held roles in engineering, product management, and strategy at companies including Pegasystems, Microsoft, and Samsung, eventually joining Vlingo in its early days and helping grow it through to acquisition. Most recently, Hadley served as the CBO at Thumb, the world's largest social network for opinions. On the personal side, he's extremely involved with work improving the lives of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Unfortunately, Hadley grew up in Boston, but he and ENIAC are based in the great city of New York. So welcome, Hadley. It's really great to have you today. <laughs> thanks, Zach. Appreciate you having me on the show. Yes, thanks for coming on the show. So if you don't mind, tell us a little bit more about your background. You know, you've worked in large corporations and startups in a whole variety of roles. What drew you to startups? Yeah, I, I've kind of always been into startups. Uh, I, I, as you mentioned, I grew up in downtown Boston and started my first company when I was about 13 that was called Beantown Odd Jobs which was myself and then eventually kind of brought in a bunch of, of my friends to kind of do kind of handy uh, task rabbit type work ar around the, uh, the downtown Boston area. Actually, uh, kind of funny story. I've never, never told this story before, but uh, one of my marketing ideas was I had uh, fake parking tickets printed up that looked just like the Boston city parking tickets and put them under cars that were ads for Beantown. And uh, actually it worked really well. Like it flooded with demand uh, unfortunately, it's it's not legal, so the cops came to my house with like a big bundle of them and uh, asked me to stop. But uh, yeah, so I always kind of had a bit of an entrepreneurial bug. My father uh, was an entrepreneur kind of later in life and kind of saw the enjoyment and satisfaction he got out of starting and running his own company, uh, not a venture back company kind of on a, on a smaller scale, but kind of success, successful in its own way. So yeah, I've always kind of had that. I, I was always into math and science, so study engineering in school. Uh, went to Penn Engineering. Actually, that's where I met my now three uh, co-founders of ENIAC. They, they were all same class as me. And honestly, didn't really know what I wanted to do kind of early in my career. So I spent a bunch of time as a developer and managing engineering teams. Went back to school at, at Penn for, for my MBA. Did a, a little bit of big company time, as you mentioned, at Samsung and Microsoft as a product manager and kind of strategist. And really just did not like working for a big company. It was just very slow moving. Didn't feel like I was having much of an impact. So uh, left there to kind of think about what I was to do next and was thinking about venture or starting a company and linked up with the guys at Charles River Ventures uh, up in Boston and kind of told them about a, a thesis I had about mobile. This is 2007 being the next evolution of computing. And, and, you know, they thought that was interesting. And they did a seed investment in a company called Blingo that was at MIT spin out, had developed a new way to do voice recognition uh, unconstrained for, for mobile phones. So started working with them kind of at first as, you know, on, on behalf of CRV and then as a contractor and then eventually joined the team. And, and that was just an awesome ride and, and learning experience for, for me. I, uh, I got to kind of run a bunch of aspects of the business over time, ran biz dev, ran marketing ran product marketing, who's the kind of de facto CFO in the early days, ran our fundraising, which taught me a lot of lessons that I use now as a, as a VC in terms of a lot of what not to do, going up and down Sand Hill Road, dealing with a lot of people that you know did, didn't always have kind of the best behavior. So awesome experience for me. We were, we were fortunate to have a nice outcome. Then I, I had been wanting to move back to New York. I, I love Boston as my hometown, but not a place I was actually looking to live as an adult and joined a venture-backed business here in New York called Thumb that SoftBank and General Catalyst and DFJ had, had invested in. 
uh, we raised a Series A and ha had a good run, and then we were acquired about a year and a half after our, our, I joined, and then basically been building ENIAC ever since. So that's kind of the maybe not so short, kind of quick background on me. Amazing. Okay. So that last part there, though, that transition to the building of ENIAC, like how did that actually come together? You know, what was that like? Sort of learning on the job, right? Because you'd been in a variety of startups, but this was your first time, you know, really working in venture capital. And as a founding general partner, you were learning on the job. So what was that like? Yeah, no, it's absolutely right. And and honestly, if I were to go back, I, I, I'd probably try and add a little more experience at kind of a larger VC fund. We, we kind of all have, uh, between the four of us, very little kind of venture experience coming into this, my, the exception being my, uh, my partner, Vic, who was at RRE for a couple of years out of business school. So we've really kind of reinvented the wheel a lot, especially in the early days. And, you know, it's turned out well in the, in the long term, but I think we made a lot of kind of stupid mistakes we probably could have avoided. There was a lot of examples early on where we kind of thought we were hacking venture and then realized, well, it's actually done this way for a reason. So probably could have used a little more experience, but, but it, it was fun in that way. And the way that it kind of originally came about when I was, did my short stint at CRV, Vic was, had just joined RRE and we were kind of started to talk about, you know, I think we really both thought that venture would be a really interesting thing to do kind of longer term, but we also saw that venture funds generally uh, are pretty top heavy. There's, you know, unlike a private equity fund or there's not kind of a, a kind of a typical path you move up over, over time to become a partner. And, and we really didn't want to kind of spend, you know, a long time sucking up to some old guys that didn't want to give up the carry. Uh, so that's kind of we first hatched the idea that we had started our own fund. And then the early days of ENIAC, we were all still kind of doing our own things. My, my partner's also founders and uh, operators. Uh, so we're kind of doing our own thing and kind of started ENIAC nights and weekends. First fund was very small, our own savings and some friends' money, 1.6 million. And that was in 2010, we started investing. 2012 was our second fund. We added family offices and it was about 13 million. And then a real kind of uh, making air quotes like institutional fund when we were all focused on a full time and had kind of university endowments join us was ENIAC 3, which is 2014 is when we started investing. And then kind of the fourth fund, which we're now investing out of ENIAC 4, which is 100 million. Uh, we started investing in 2017. So we'll, we'll kind of wrap up the initial investments next year on that. Absolutely. Wow. Congratulations on that. Yeah, I'm at uh, Shadow Ventures, as some of the audience knows. As far as fundraising goes, I've learned there's a tremendous difference between raising from friends and family, family offices, high net worths, and then the pension funds and all the institutional investors. Totally different world. Totally. Absolutely. And, and they, they each have their kind of pros and cons, depending on kind of where you are in, in your life cycle. So like, when did you know that you were doing a good job as an investor? Uh, I mean, be, being an early stage investor, you're, I'm not sure you ever know you're doing a good job. I mean, you're, you're learning every day, but there is so much kind of luck and chance and unknowable information and decision in your investment decisions. It's certainly nothing I think anyone could ever really master. I, I think though, for, for us, when we started kind of having a good feeling, we, our first acquisition was back, I think, 2013-14, a company we had backed in our first fund, Tap Commerce, sold for $100 million after the Series A. So, you know, not like the, the huge outcome that, that kind of when you have a larger fund you go, go for, but but certainly, you know, returned a good amount of capital back and, and showed us that, you know, th this is working to a certain extent, you know, money, money's coming back in the door. So that, that's positive. So I, I think that's when we started to kind of get a better feeling. And then um, with our third fund, when you're going from 13 to, to 55, 
we transitioned from being more of a follower fund to a lead fund. And that's that's a big learning curve for folks that are going through that. I meet a lot of kind of VCs that are kind of earlier in their fund cycles that are trying to do that transition. But it's just a, a lot more work and you need a lot more conviction to do that. So I think it took us like a good year, maybe two to kind of get our are kind of sea legs on that. But then I think since then we've been in a, you know, these where I think we're doing really good work, you know, at the end of the day, like we're all engineers. So the way we think about things is constant iteration. So we're, we're constantly updating how we do make our decisions, how we run our processes, how we interact with our portfolio. So it's kind of a constant kind of iteration and improvement over time. But but there were kind of a couple of kinks, I think, in the curve around kind of getting our first money back. And then when we shifted from follower to a, a lead fund. Well, obviously you've worked out those kinks and your portfolio speaks for itself. Uh, I, I appreciate your investment in Anchor, which was acquired by Spotify. That's how we're publishing this podcast. You know, clearly you have so many winners. What's the, what's the secret sauce? Well, yeah, I mean, just by nature of being a seed stage investor, you're, you're always going to, you know, you, you, they can't all be great. You know, just the, that would run against kind of the, the laws of physics or, or I guess statistics. I think kind of what we do well, or kind of our secret sauce, if you will, is we're four founding GPs. We don't have attribution between us. And so we're much more team oriented. And, and for that reason, we equal partners. And, and for that reason, we are all kind of fully incentivized to work on kind of all companies uh, in terms of uh, making decisions as well as after we make the investment. It's, it's more of the benchmark model. And I think that's a, a real asset. I think if you look at, you know, 99% of VCs over time, they have kind of senior junior partners and they all have different carry. And a lot of them will have, you know, their, their, their compensations tied only to the investments they lead. And there's really no incentive for others to really help them make those best decisions or amplify those companies. So I, I think that kind of flat organization with us all being founders and having operational backgrounds, uh, I think is kind of our, our biggest asset. So you'd say the startup and operational experience has really impacted how you look at venture investing and, and really helped you pick winners. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I, I actually think that it's really helpful for winning competitive deals and for accelerating our portfolio. I'm not sure if it helps that much with the actual decision making of, of picking winners. I mean, I'm obviously biased, so I, I much prefer kind of VCs in terms of folks that we co-invest with that have operational backgrounds. I just think they're a lot more helpful to the company. Folks that kind of come from finance or a different background, I think they're probably in kind of equal footing in terms of making the decisions of like what to invest in. You know, you have folks like Fred Wilson that, you know, don't have operational backgrounds. I think they've obviously picked a ton of great winners. And certainly folks like that that kind of are, are in venture a long time will see a lot and kind of can kind of cross-pollinate learnings from one company to another. But, but to me, I think we're, where we really kind of have been able to utilize our operational background is working with the portfolio, having been in their shoes, having empathy for the situation that they're in, especially during tough times, having managed teams, having you know, hired and fired people. I think that's a big asset and that's where you kind of see that stand out. No, totally. And, and absolutely, ENIAC is known for your founder friendliness and your you know, true founder first mentality, which is incredible. I think it was Raj at Demand Sage who put it nicely on Twitter this month, actually. You know, everyone kind of talks the talk, founder friendliness, all that, but you really walk the walk. Anything you want to say more about that? Yeah, I mean, we, we certainly think of ourselves as being really founder friendly. And, and I hope that if you talk to the founders that we've worked with over the last 10 years, that's, that's what they would say. You know, as you mentioned, unfortunately, everyone says that. So it just kind of makes the kind of understanding kind of who's founder friendly and who isn't really cloudy for, for a new founder who's trying to figure that out. 
I think the kind of main NPS score that we think about with that is founders that want to work with us for a second time. So in the last four years, we've backed four teams that we backed kind of in our earlier years. And, and I think that will continue to accelerate now that we have kind of more and more time that we're operating. And folks like uh, the attentive founders, like Raj at, at Demand Sage and the Super Peer team. And then there's one more that hasn't been announced. So, you know, that that's what kind of gets us excited when founders come back. And it, and it even often could be founders that we didn't work with. We, we've had a bunch of companies in the last couple of years where the founders pitched us, you know, three, four, five years ago, we passed for, for whatever reason, uh, but then they came back and, and we've actually backed them and led their, their seed round. So, you know, not only is it important to kind of be founder friendly with the folks you invest in, it's also how you conduct yourself when you do pass, being open, transparent, being communicative, trying to give them, you know, real feedback. I think the bar is super low for that in, in most VCs. A lot of folks just ghosting and whatnot. So we, we found that that's kind of a, a you know, internally when you, when you source a, a deal that, you know, you passed on before, that's like the highest star you can get, you know, in, sort of, in terms of street cred from the rest of the partnership. Cause that means like you really did your job uh, a few years ago in kind of uh, giving a good impression of, of the firm to, to those founders. Yeah, I mean, that's like a no-brainer to me. If I was building a company right now and raising money, I would much prefer to take money from you if I was so lucky, you know, because you, you really would be there to help. So that, oh, that's- Oh, thanks, great. appreciate that. Of course. So let's talk about something that's obviously very important uh, and becoming more discussed. So diversity, opportunities for minorities and women, obviously of extreme importance. And thankfully people are now talking about it, like I said, but it really is just a start. And you know, ENIAC is definitely a leader in the space. You have a wonderful diverse team. What can others in venture capital and kind of the broader startup ecosystem do to make actual change happen? Yeah, you know, this is something we care a lot about and have kind of before it was a thing. I think both in terms of hiring our team, you know, if you look at our current team and our hiring over the last few years, it's, it's pretty much all been either women or underrepresented founders. And, and you know, that's something that's really important to us. You know, now that it's kind of become out at the forefront, I definitely see a lot of firms where it's more kind of just talk and window dressing. And, and the thing here is like, everyone needs to kind of do what they're passionate about. Like we, we happen to have a lot of passion for diversity and we put a lot of emphasis on that. And I think because of that, we've, we've been able to kind of understand some of the issues. If you don't have a passion about, if you don't have passion for that, that's fine. Maybe there's something else you have passion, but don't kind of do this kind of half-ass window dressing stuff. It's not really helpful to the problem. And sometimes I think it's even hurtful because you're, you're not coming at it from kind of an authentic point of view. You know, I personally believe that diversity is important for two reasons. One is that it's kind of the moral right thing to do. The second thing is it's, it's really good for business. I mean, there's countless business school studies on this. And I think a lot of pe people kind of focus on the first one and kind of push that onto other entities that maybe aren't passionate about the issue and they feel kind of forced and that's why they do this half-assed. I'd rather folks kind of focus on the fact that it's, it's actually really good for business and it helps you succeed. Because if you're not passionate about diversity for kind of the moral reasons, at least, you know, you're, everyone's kind of self-serving. So th th they will kind of follow through if, if they understand how important it is for their, their business. So yeah, I, I guess th that's generally how we think about it. Like anything, it's an evolving issue. So I think we'll continue to kind of think about what we can do as a firm to foster a more diverse ecosystem. 
and, and again, selfishly, you know, do it because we think it will help us be successful. Right. Totally a good point. You know, diverse perspectives go a long way, diverse circles to identify opportunities that might not otherwise be found. So yeah, it definitely serves a business purpose as well. In addition to, like you said, the moral purpose. What trends do you predict in venture and startups going forward, given the pandemic and everything related to it? Yeah. One thing that I think will happen that I'm not sure how kind of broadly this opinion is felt. I think there's going to be a bit of a reckoning in the next couple of years where a lot of venture firms will unfortunately go out of business. And the driver for this mainly is that the main sources of capital, which are institutions, endowments, pension funds, foundations, fund of funds, there's a relatively consistent amount of capital. It's growing, but, but not at the rate needed to kind of be able to feed kind of all the funds. And then on the other side, you have the larger multi-stage funds, your Sequoia, Lightspeed, General Catalyst, raising more and more money. And they're basically just sucking up more of the institutional capital. And, and because of that, I think there's a lot of firms that were founded, especially kind of in the last four or five years, that haven't really had the chance to have kind of real cash results in terms of their distributions that are just going to be in a tough spot because a lot of their LPs, that pool of capital that they've allocated for venture, more of it will go to the sequoias of the world. So for that reason, I think there's going to be a bit of a reckoning and a, and a good amount of these firms that are operating now will just not be able to raise new funds in the, in the next couple of years. I think we're fortunate that we've been operating since 2010. We've, we've already kind of returned a number of funds. So we're just kind of lucky to kind of been operating long enough that we have those results. And unfortunately, there's a lot of folks that just because of time, won't be able to do that, even if they are doing good work. So I think what, what it will look like in two years is you'll have these mega funds. You'll have a subset that like us that want to kind of stay relatively small, but luckily have been operating long enough that we have a proven track record. And then I think what you'll have is a lot of kind of solo GP, very small funds that will be able to, uh, to pop up and, and in some cases thrive by never having to access uh, institutional capital. So kind of, you know, individual high net worth type folks that they can that want to invest in venture but don't have access to the the sequoias of the world and, and that's great you know it gives another option for founders predicting the future you know based on what i do for a job i know very well is extremely hard to do but if that would be my guess of what things look like in the, in the next two years or so that makes sense would you say there are any uh general pet peeves you have about venture capital as an industry <laughs> yeah I have a lot of them and they most often are directed at other VCs that I just don't think are serving the needs of their founders. But one pet peeve I always tend to have to bring up a lot uh, that kind of goes towards both founders and, and venture investors is kind of how you run your board meeting. And, you know, it, these days it's, we, we uh, when we're leading seed rounds, we're generally joining the board, not always depending on the situation, but in most cases and, ha and have board meetings with us and the, the kind of other co-leads or whatever. And I feel strongly that the founders need to get the materials out, whether that's a deck or however they want to run it, at least two days in advance, and that all the investors and other stakeholders that attend the meeting need to review it during that time and tag things they have questions about. But the, the, the idea is that the board meeting really needs to be focused on what are the, like the one to three really burning questions, really important kind of strategic open questions that, that, that the company has. Uh, what it shouldn't be is 75% of the two hours just as an update. Like that, that, should, that can be done asynchronously. There, there's no reason for everyone to sit around and kind of listen to someone read slides. And unfortunately, you see it kind of on both sides with just not getting the materials out in time, but probably even more often, clearly the other VCs haven't gone through the materials and they're asking stupid questions that easily could be answered if they had. 
so that's that's maybe one of a, a very specific pet peeve I have. Right. It's like those memes, you know, oh, another meeting that could have been an email. Yeah. Yeah. Have. I guess lastly, is there any general advice you have for maybe first time founders or any founders, you know, at this point in time? Yeah. I mean, this is not novel, but, but I do think it's kind of the, probably the most important thing for, for a founder who's at the ideation phase or considering starting a company is just find out something that you're super passionate about that like literally to you is the most interesting thing in the world whether that be the particular problem or the solution or a certain technology. And if you don't have that yet, then don't start a company. Wait, wait until you feel passionate for something like that. Because the reality is, if you're at all successful, you're going to spend at least five, 10, in some cases, 15, 20 years, where that is going to be your, the majority of every one of your days, and it's going to be a shit ton of work. And if you're super passionate, and that's like the most interesting thing in the world to you, you're going to be happy. I mean, that, that's like a, a life that I think most people would aspire to, to be able to do what they love and kind of spend time on something that they're, that they're really passionate about and find interesting. But if it's something you just kind of notice as a problem and it's not an area that gets you super excited uh, every time you think about it, then, you know, you, you're going to get bored and it's going to be a struggle because it's, it's really hard work. And if you're doing that in an area that you're not that excited about, uh, I just think your general happiness is not going to be as high. So I know it's kind of very broad and probably not that novel, but, but that's kind of the main advice I have for, for folks that are kind of at the early stages of, of thinking about a, something that they, they want to start. No, that sounds like amazing advice. So what's the best way for people to either follow you or get in touch with you? Yeah, I, I probably spend too much time on Twitter. So uh, my handle is at Hadley, very easy to, to uh, remember. Uh, my, uh, my partner, Nahal, hooked me up uh, through uh, Jack in the early days. So he's very jealous because he does not have Etna Hall. But yeah, so on Twitter, I, 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 my DMs are open and I try and respond to all new ones coming in in some way. So that's, that's the best way. The one place to not tr try and contact me is LinkedIn because it's just overwhelming. And I, I, I try and be clear on my LinkedIn page that, it, that I don't check the messages, but Twitter, uh, by far the best place. Hadley, really on a personal level, thank you so much for coming on the show, for making time, for sharing your amazing wisdom. And by the way, I didn't mention it, but I should also share. When I was looking to break into venture capital, from a cold email, Hadley responded to me. He had me come to his office in Soho, gave me incredible advice, took time for me then as well. I wasn't even a founder. I was somebody who needed advice that he was able to share. And so he truly is friendly and, and always willing to, to help out. So Hadley, thank you so, so much for coming on today. Uh, thanks, Zach. Thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Ladies and gentlemen, what an honor to have Hadley Harris share his time and insights with us. Hadley and his partners manage an astounding portfolio. We're lucky to learn a bit from the best, though there must be more to the secret sauce than we discussed. Like he said, you can catch him on Twitter at Hadley. Many thanks again, Hadley. Thanks again for listening to The New York Startup. I'm Zach Firestone. You can always find us at thenewyorkstartup.com and follow us on Twitter at VNYStartup. Make sure to subscribe to the show Looking forward to catching you on the next episode.